A very warm welcome to all of our listeners this afternoon. You are listening to Professor David Block and our show this afternoon at cliffcentral.com is entitled Looking Up with David Block. And I think that as we have such special guests in our studio each week, the key theme is always one of never looking down, but rather of seeing the bigger picture, the mystery in the cosmos, the enigma, the stories to unfold in your life and mine. But one of the stories, and please remember that I've been at the University of the Witwatersrand for about 30 years now, But one of the stories that has really captivated my attention over the years has been a very, very interesting little beetle. And connected to the beetle is my subject of uh, interest and research, and that is the stars. Beatles and the stars. Well, you might be thinking of the Beatles, the famous pop group that uh, were very famous when I grew up as a very young boy. But I'm not talking about those sorts of Beatles at all. My guest today uh, will unfold an extraordinary story in space and in cosmic time to us. His name is Professor Marcus Byrne. Professor Marcus Byrne has his BSc Honours, London, and his doctorate from the University of the Witwatersrand, where he is a professor of entomology. Now, in introducing Marcus today to our global audience, whether you be here in South Africa or listening or podcasting from Chicago, we're going to unfold one of the most incredible stories of beetles and the stars, tiny little beetles and the gargantuan microcosm and the gargantuan macrocosm. It is an extraordinary story which I find and trust you will also find riveting today. So, Marcus, a very, very warm welcome to you at cliffcentral.com. Thanks, David, and thanks for the invitation. It's really a great joy. I know we've waited uh, several weeks, if not a few months, to have you here due to your schedule, but it's absolutely awesome for us to have you here in studio today with uh, Duncan, who is our sound engineer. Now, of course, uh, Marcus, South Africa often doesn't occupy, in the world of science, central stage. If we think of, for example, the world of soccer, yes, FIFA World Cup, everybody was flying to South Africa, and South Africa was really central focus. The burial of Nelson Mandela again. The world was focused uh, on South African soil and shores. But... As a scientist, I mean, let's take, let's, let's be honest. You and I are not working at Yale or at Harvard. And yet, 
I've always felt very privileged to be a South African doing science. How do you actually view, remembering that most of our listeners are 25 years and younger, how would you view the concept of doing science in South Africa, Marcus? I think that's a great question because you're right. We often, I think as South Africans, tend to be apologetic about what we are and what we're doing. Mm. And we're always, we have an inferiority complex to some degree. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we should um, mm -hmm. because we do world-class science. We publish in international journals. So we're, we're publishing with our peers at Yale and at Harvard. And we're getting our work out with theirs shoulder to shoulder. And for me, the, the joy of being here is one is the, the people. The people here are just incredible to they work are, with. They are, aren't they? Yes. The, then is the environment. Um, you know, we couldn't do this work that we do on dung beetles. Uh, certainly in Europe, it would be difficult in America. Um, possibly South America is about the only place you could do it. Even Australia couldn't do it. Yes. And uh, I work with Swedish colleagues yes. on this work, and they yes. come all the way from Sweden yes. to, to do this work here. So in other words, there are uh, teams of international collaborators with whom you work. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. So there's uh, people from Sweden that um, I'm doing this orientation work on, mm -hmm. uh, people from Harvard and Max Planck Institute. We're mm -hmm. looking at dung beetle digestion, believe it or not, because mm -hmm. we don't really know what dung beetles eat. Mm -hmm. And then I've also got a collaborator at um, the State University in Colorado where we're working on um, alien weeds, believe well. it or not. Now, Marcus, I would love you to uh, take us down a journey of the following. We've be, you've been using the words, and so eloquently so, the, the, um, the concept of the dung beetle. But let's just imagine, say, someone in Alaska, and they're sitting there now, and uh, it's pretty cold, and uh, they're near the Arctic Circle, and they just do not have the foggiest idea of what a dung beetle might be. Or uh, someone in Norway, for example, you know, at Sommeroy at 70 degrees north, the concept of dung and dung beetle would be totally foreign to someone listening to us, for example, in Japan. Could you describe carefully and slowly to all of our listeners, including myself, exactly what distinguishes the species of dung beetles and what do they do? Okay. Um, it's a huge question. It's a big question. <laughs> so just take your time. Yeah. So, again, living in this country, we are absolutely overwhelmed with the number of insect species that are available to us. How many do we have approximately? We don't know. We haven't a clue. 60% yes. of the species in this country don't even have a name. So that's it's virgin snow. That's incredible. 60% do not even have a name. Yeah. So, yeah. so we estimate we've got 90,000 to over 100,000 species of insects. In that's this incredible. Country. And in the world, insects are the most species group of organisms. So there are more species of insects than trees than plants than bacteria than fish than birds so this is the planet of the insects wonderful yeah so forget 
I always tell my students, forget um, Angelina Jolie and uh, Brad mm -hmm. Pitt. The body plan for this planet is to be a beetle, because of mm -hmm. the insects, the beetles are the most numerous. Yes. Um, so it's clearly an incredibly successful body structure. Yes. So it's a basic insect, which means it's got three body parts. It's got a head, a middle bit, which we call the thorax, and an abdomen, which is the back bit. Mm -hmm. And then it's got three pairs of legs and an external skeleton. Mm -hmm. And we think that's its key to its success, is that it's this hard little packet mm -hmm. that can hide away pretty much anywhere. It could, you could almost have beetles, you may even have beetles hiding in this studio somewhere. Yes. But then tucked under those hard outer wing covers, beetles have a, a membranous pair of wings that allows them to fly. Yes. So not only can they hide in hundreds of places, they can also move pretty much wherever they like. So that's the beetles, and then within the beetles, the dung beetles, worldwide there are about 6,000 species of dung beetles worldwide. That's incredible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in fact, even in Scandinavia, in Sweden, they have four species of dung beetles, mm -hmm. uh, where we've got 800 species of dung beetles, which I always enjoy. People say they went to the game reserve and they saw a giraffe and an elephant and a lion mm -hmm. and a dung beetle. No, you didn't. You saw one of potentially 800 species mm -hmm. of dung beetles. Mm -hmm. And... Ecologically, they are an incredibly important group because mm. they clean up the mess. Mm. You know, the so could you explain to someone perhaps who hasn't had the privilege of visiting South Africa, going, for example, to the Kruger National Park or some of our other famous parks, um, they might, you know, even the concept, for example, of, you know, a lion grazing to a city dweller uh, in Tokyo is perhaps, or in China, is perhaps extremely foreign to them. Uh, could you describe, I mean, okay, we've got dung now. Uh, what do these beetles do? You, you mentioned they clean up. Do they actually roll up balls of dung? Could you describe this dung process to us? Yeah, so... You're right. Nobody really needs me to describe the dung, but because uh, we we tend to ignore it and just hope that it goes away. And that's really what these guys do: is that they make it go away. And basically, there's two ways in which they remove dung. One is the visible way, which South Africans will have be aware of, where they do roll it into a, a transportable package. And basically, what they're doing is they're getting a big slice of the cake and. There's two ways to eat your cake. You can mm -hmm. stand at the cake counter and eat it, but then right. you've got to fight everybody else for your slice. Right. Or you grab the biggest piece you can and you run away with it and hide it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what the ball rollers do. Mm -hmm. But however, they are in a minority. So of our 800 species, only about 80 of them, so only about 10% actually roll balls. The other um, 90% yes. actually you never see unless you're prepared to get poo under your fingernails and yes. poke around in the poo Yes, you will never see those beetles because they fly directly into the dung Yes, and then they tunnel down below it and then they shuttle back and forth That's between the surface of the, That's the soil extraordinary. and they make a nest mm -hmm. and in that nest they pack away an elephant dropping can be packed away by a pair of very large beetles during the course of a night mm-hmm and in the summer, which is, we're on the edge of summer now, we had that beautiful rain over the weekend, 
The Beatles will come out now, mm. and they'll start packing away poo at an incredible rate. Mm. So, from the site, for example, you've got, say, uh, poo somewhere in the Kruger National Park. How far would they roll these balls? Is it meters or tens of meters, or is it more? Yeah, it, it depends. The, the tunnelers will go directly beneath it and can tunnel up to a meter beneath the dome. It's extraordinary. The rollers can literally roll it, say, five, ten centimeters or 30 meters. Or 30 meters. And it really just depends on what takes their fancy. And that suggests that beetles are clever little guys that can make decisions like you and I. They can weigh uh, factors to make a a choice between things and in fact they can't it's more like they have a set of switches that drop um, when a certain stimulus is is given to them so for instance they could roll up against a rock or um, a tuft of grass and that would be stimulus to then bury the dung at that point if they're on an open field and we do this experiment with them we actually take them into the middle of a hockey pitch an astroturf and we plonk them down and let them roll, and they will roll, and they just keep going until they find somewhere to, to make their nest. So, in other words, they don't communicate one with another, as you say. It's more robotically in terms of switching? Absolutely, yeah. So, there's, the, as far as we're aware, there are no social dung beetles, mm-hmm. so there's no communication between them at all. Um, but even in terms of their concept of the world around them, they're not particularly aware creatures because they've got such tiny brains. Their brain is about 350,000 neurons. Yours and my brain are literally hundreds of billions of, of neurons. And so they just don't have the brain power to make decisions and, and um, make choices. But nevertheless, they are little automatons that are able to appear clever because they they switch on and off when they mm-hmm. have the right stimulus mm-hmm. so in other words here is this poo let's just be very basic here is this poo for example uh elephant dung for example and uh here these beetles come and start rolling the dung into balls now before going into the way they do this do they do this at during the day or at night and we'll go into the orientation in a moment but I mean do do they start rolling balls uh, on a 24-7 basis or is it preferentially done at night well again um, the issue here is that dung is a tight market and you have to be a specialist (laughs) I love that and if you want to dung is a tight market that's lovely well you know you think about it go and look for some and then you'll you'll realize how Usually rare it is because yes. it's ephemeral. It doesn't last very long. No, that's true. And that's it's true. And it's patchy. It comes mm. in little blobs mm. al- across the landscape. Mm. So when you find a blob, you have to work it. It's like gold. <laughs> <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> yes. Because it is for these animals because that's the vehicle that they're going to get their genes into the next generation on. And in evolutionary terms, that is, that's the future. You've got to get your genes into the next generation. Yes. So, so, yes, they they f- find the dung, and uh, they generally work at a specific time of day. So of the 800 species, they've literally sliced the day into periods of different periods of activity. I see. So there'll be some species which are day flyers, mm-hmm. 
and there are some species which are night flyers, mm -hmm. and there are some species which are dusk flyers. And in fact, mm -hmm. some of the species that fly at dusk mm -hmm. literally have a 30-minute window in which they can be active. And if, mm. if the elements don't conspire to be perfect for them in terms of light and heat at that point, mm. they won't be active. And they mm. then will sit the night out and they'll mm. wait again for their 30-minute window the next day. That's incredible. So again, beautiful nature that slices up the 24 hours yes. into periods of activity depending on what your speciality yes. is as a beetle. You are listening to Professor David Block and I have the singular honor and joy this afternoon of interviewing Professor Marcus Byrne from the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg here in South Africa. He's Professor of Entomology. He is world famous uh, regarding the dung beetle and it's an extraordinary story we've only just started it's going to be the most remarkable story to unfold the world of dung but the world of gold the world of something which we might call as in Winnie the Pooh Pooh and something which is absolutely stellar in content as of a diamond should you wish to contact us in studio here in Ravonia today, our studio number is 0861 The Twitter handle is at cliffcentral.com. The WeChat ID is cliffcentral. The Facebook ID is Cliff Central. And if you wish to reach us on Instagram, reach us at handle at Cliff Central. I know we have people such as Tracy listening in today and many multitudes of others. Do call in. Ask your questions on 0861-555-189. We have a question just before we go to a little music break from Gary. And Gary wants to know, do dung beetles only eat or specialize in dung, or is it only just one of the dietary elements they feast upon? Okay, so no, a great question. Again, it tends to be a degree of specialization, but not as much as the, the literature says. So the, there's a lot of literature that says the addo elephant dung beetle, which you may have seen, it's a beautiful flightless animal that walks around looking, walking from one pile of elephant dung to the next. Yes. They don't just live on elephant dung. They can actually survive on human dung. They can survive on pig dung, horse dung, cow dung. I see. But nevertheless, dung is actually part of a continuum. It's um, Think of grass at one end and think of a dead body at the other end. Mm -hmm. And it's a continuum of detritus that it's basically the dead stuff. Mm -hmm. And so the majority of dung beetles have settled on excrement, dung. Mm -hmm. But some species um, actually eat grass so they cut it and they roll it into balls and make it into a little ball I and see. at the other end there are some species that eat carrion so they eat dead animals um, and they will slice um, bits off a dead animal or even bury a small dead animal like a mouse and use that as a food source mm -hmm. but my favorite species is we've, in fact we've got seven species in this country that they actually eat millipedes hmm. so the big shongalolos hmm. and it's the most hilarious thing you've ever seen so instead of trying to roll this thing into a ball which they can't they sort of push this huge sausage along the ground bury it and mm. they use it for food and they use mm. it as a 
mm-hmm. um, a breeding source, mm-hmm. a, a source of food for their offspring. So in other words, to answer Gary's question, the answer that they only specialize in dung is no. You have this wide spectrum of uh, dietary interests uh, regarding the beetles. We're going to take a short music break. Uh, we're going to, I believe, Gary will, uh, Duncan will uh, tell us. We are going to be playing some of my favorite music today, uh, that of Antonio Vivaldi and the Four Seasons. Sit back and relax for the next two to three minutes as we take you through one of those incredible um, seasons while the dung beetles do their poo business on that pale blue dot which Carl Sagan dubbed as being the earth. You are listening to Professor David Block. The broadcast is entitled Looking Up with David Block. To reach us in studio, the number is 0861-555-189. And the WeChat, which is the favorite way of reaching me, is Cliff Central. I'm at www.davidblock.co.za and my Twitter handle is this at Starry Galaxy Man at Starry Galaxy Man we are 
dealing with an extraordinary story today. And in studio here in Ravonia is the world of dung beetles. In fact, we have a whole selection of them crawling about in the studio. And my guest today is a world-renowned expert in uh, the subject of beetles. But now, Professor Marcus Byrne, but now I want Marcus to start taking us on the most enigmatic uh, journey, and that's the following, one which has captivated my attention for many years now, and that is the fact that uh, beetles don't just navigate in some arbitrary way. Marcus. Thanks. Um, in fact, none of us do. Any organism that wants to move across the planet in a straight line has to do so with reference to an external object. Yes, good. If you close your eyes and block your ears and try and walk in a straight line, you will either hurt yourself or walk around in a great big circle. Mm-hmm. And so you and I navigate by uh, landmarks. So mm-hmm. humans are principally landmark mm-hmm. navigators. You have a an internal map of the external world in your head. You know where the shops are. You know where the mm-hmm. church is. You know where the supermarket is. Mm-hmm. And you move through that map um, physically and mentally. Yes. And that requires a lot of brain power um, because you need to be able to build a map You need to, and then you need to be able to locate yourself in it at any given point. Mm-hmm. And some of us are not very good at that. So mm-hmm. I made it to the studio <laughs> today by... Um, benefit of a navigator a gps because i'm absolutely awful at mm. internal maps but nevertheless a lot of insects are also very good navigators um, and they need to move in a straight line but they don't have the brain power to mm. build internal maps mm. plus they don't live long enough that they, they are throwaway organisms they mm. have very short life cycles what is the typical life cycle of for example the dung beetle it, it's like the answer to the previous question. It depends. Um, sm- and typically, in sort yeah. of in a Gaussian spread? Yeah, a small guy, small guy, um, probably about six weeks to... I see, so a very, to, very short time. Yeah, to the big ones, three years. I see, all right. So, um, but nevertheless, they are still disposable organisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they do is they use celestial cues. Mm-hmm. Now that's where we, that's <laughs> listeners where we starting where the rubber hits the road. I mean, this is extraordinary. Here we have a little guy and we've got a couple of little guys in studio and our guest Marcus Byrne is just telling us that there's a celestial link to the eyes, to the, it, to the receptors of these beetles which, which involve the, uh, the celestial sphere. Marcus, tell us more. So, as you know, there are a couple of large bodies that float through our sky on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So the sun is princi- obviously the principal one for the day active beetles. Yes. And they, basically what they do is they can see it um, they probably can't resolve it very well because their not, eyes are not particularly accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they do, they'll hold it in a particular quarter of their vision. So say they would hold the sun at 90 degrees to themselves. They imagine mm-hmm. you know, that the sun is off to the right. And if I keep the sun on my right, I can travel in a straight line for hundreds of kilometers w- without deviating. Mm-hmm. And if I want to do it even for longer, I obviously need a clock to mm-hmm. compensate for the mm-hmm. movement of that. Mm-hmm. So then the nocturnal species don't have the sun, but they can use the moon. Mm-hmm. And we've tested that, and we've shown that um, beetles need these cues. And the, the simplest experiment we've done is literally put a little cap on them. 
Yes. So how do you ask a dung beetle, yes. are you using the sun? Yes. It's dead easy. Yes. You put a cap on it. Yes. So the eyes are still functional. Yes. Um, but it can't see that celestial object. Yes. And then it walks around in a circle. Amazing. Yeah. So Amazing. it's a very simple experiment. But now, Marcus, I'm most interested to know what happens, say, in the months of June. Because listeners around the world, you know, in the Southern Hemisphere, we have the blazing Via Lactea, the way. L via, the way. Lactea, Lacteus, the milk. And we've got this extraordinary stretch the starry vault of a hundred thousand million blazing stars. And I've been reading an incredible story wherein Marcus Byrne is uh, occupying central stage uh, with regard to beetles, dung beetles, navigating by means of the Milky Way. You must please uh, enlighten our listeners on this topic. Well, it was w one of those serendipitous moments where we'd been working on nocturnal species and we'd been using the moon mm -hmm. and uh, doing our little experiment with caps on, caps off. And you can also mirror the moon or mirror the sun so you can change the angle that it comes at to the beetle f up to 180 degrees and watch mm -hmm. how they respond. So we, we had this clear message that, yes, they are using the, the moon. Then, of course, the moon rises and sets. Mm -hmm. So after the moon went down one night... Uh, we were sitting in the field, congratulating ourselves, having a beer and looking up at this beautiful Milky Way, as you said. Mm. And we thought, they must be able to see that. There's no way that they cannot see that beautiful strip of mm. stars across the sky. Mm. Now, we knew that they couldn't resolve um, the stars because their eyes actually aren't as... Uh, accurate as ours. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine them using a pixel size of about the size of your index finger mm -hmm. fingernail held at arm's length. Mm -hmm. So sitting across the studio like this, I could recognize you because you're probably about 20, 30 pixels. Mm -hmm. But um, looking at somebody outside the studio, their face would of be course. about two pixels. Of course. So you can't resolve those faces. And it's the same for the beetle. They can't resolve the stars. Mm -hmm. But what they will see is this smear of light, this mm -hmm. brilliant light across the mm -hmm. sky. Being the Milky Way. Yeah. And that's the external cue but, um, that they can then use. If they've got a fixed point in mm. the sky, then they can go anywhere they like. So now, let's just take the example. You're in the uh, bush felt. You're in the bush, the African bush, the vibrant African bush. And um, you uh, place the beetles, or you're watching the beetles, and the Milky Way is, say, arching across the sky. Do they actually follow the direction of the arching light? Generally not. So the, the whole issue is having a fixed point. I see. And then a they, point of reference. Yeah, and they can go to it or away from it or an angle to it. I see. So, so it itself is not taking them all in one direction no. and that would actually be counterintuitive because if you think about it, it really is. what they're trying to do is avoid each other mm -hmm. because someone's going to steal their piece of cake mm -hmm. and so if they're all heading off in the same direction they're going to get into a fight mm -hmm. and so being able to disperse from a central point using a fixed um, celestial cue is is what we've found is they head off in all directions mm -hmm. um, but they can go in a straight line mm -hmm. and that's the key issue is so now for example, in my field, control experiments are so essential. 
You've obviously, therefore, taken these little guys, these dung beetles, for example, and placed caps on them. And tell us about your experiences, say, at the planetarium, because there you are able to, quote, unquote, fool them, conduct control experiments and the like. What happens when you do this? What happens, for example, when you obscure the Milky Way? What happens when the Milky Way is visible but you put caps on? Please tell us about the control experiments, because after all, it's only in the world of a contr- after controls experiments are conducted that one can actually make highly definitive scientific hypotheses and statements. Yeah, absolutely. So with the sun and the moon, we were able to block them by shading them and using a mirror to, to manipulate their position. So, mm-hmm. you know, we could reflect mm-hmm. the moon from a completely different angle. The Milky Way is too big. You cannot fiddle with that in the field. So we went to the Witz Planetarium, and the lady that runs it is a lady called Claire Flanagan. Mm-hmm. And can you imagine when you go into this beautiful arena with this instrument, which was built in 1938, and you say to somebody, can I bring my dung beetles <laughs> into your... That's hilarious. And she, yeah. That's hilarious. She was just so enthusiastic. It mm-hmm. was So before we even get into the science of it, the mm-hmm. thrill for us to go into a planetarium, you, you're probably used to it. But for yes. us to conduct an experiment yes. in a planetarium yes. was blissful. Yes, and especially carrying your little beloved beetles. <laughs> well, that's it. Yes. Because it's ridiculous on top of everything yes, else. Yes, absolutely it yeah. is. Yeah. And so lead us through what you did and the control experiments and what you found, Marcus. So, so going into the planetarium allowed us to ma- manipulate the sky pretty right. much any way we liked. Right. And principally what we were able to do was take the Milky Way in and out of the sky. Yes. And we could take the stars in and out of the sky. Yes. And so what we did was we set up... The the first thing was to find out whether they responded to the sky of the planetarium in the same way as they did to the sky in the field. Yes. Absolutely. They can't tell the difference. Statistically, they are exactly the same. Hmm. So they obviously enjoy a planetarium as much (laughs) as we do. That's extraordinary. Mm. And then what we did is we took the Milky Way out of the sky, mm-hmm. and they were able to navigate not quite as well, but but not significantly slower or mm-hmm. less accurate. Mm-hmm. Put the Milky Way back and took all the stars out, mm-hmm. and they were able to navigate as well as they could with with the whole sky. That's extraordinary. Yep. So they actually need the starry vaults above yep. as reference points and landmarks. And once they have those landmarks, they can start moving their balls of dung. Yeah. And then what we did is we took out the Milky Way and all the dim stars. So there were 18 bright stars left in the sky, Mm -hmm. and they got lost. They couldn't do it because they cannot resolve those tiny points of light. I see. So they didn't have this sweep of light intensity across the sky. The dots didn't do them any good. No. So in other words, they actually need, you almost need... The diffusivity of the Milky Way, the vast, uh, sprawling arch of the Via Lactea. And then you are telling our listeners today that beetles can actually orientate themselves and navigate through the African bush by means of the stars. I find that extraordinary. How difficult is it to put caps onto these little guys' eyes? I mean, they're not that big. No, it's quite difficult. You need a steady hand and a lot of patience and some particularly sticky glue. But we actually stick it onto their backs. Yes. Because I talked about the middle section of the body. And so we get, it's like a golf cap. 
and you stick it onto the yes. onto that middle thorax yes. and it projects over the head yes and then blocks their view of the sky yes so you've you've got to have a bit of patience and as you know you've got to repeat the experiment over and over again mm-hmm. uh, with different individuals to prove that it's not just one individual mm-hmm. but it's part of the fun because it's again ridiculous putting a hat on a beetle but at the same time you know the result you want and when it comes it's delightful yes yes Folk, we're listening to Dung being a tight market. We are listening to the awesomeness of uh, beetles, uh, dung beetles navigating by means of the Milky Way, uh, by means of the vast arch so brilliantly seen in the Southern Hemisphere. But then uh, our guest, our distinguished guest this afternoon, Professor Marcus Byrne, has also done some very sophisticated experiments, uh, not only using the Milky Way, but uh, in looking at some of his recent publications, one is entitled The Diurnal Dung Beetles Use the Intensity Gradient and the Polarization Pattern of the Sky for Orientation. Now that's taking one to a totally different level. It's one thing uh, for you and I to understand that the the dung beetles are using the uh, arch of the Milky Way for orientation. But when it comes to highly sophisticated concepts, such as the intensity gradients of the sky and then polarized light, uh, please just take us through those concepts, first of all, for those listeners who do not have a scientific background of intensity gradient, of polarization, and then how do these little guys, these little dung beetles, use intensity gradients and polarized light as landmarks as they traverse the African soil? Well, the bottom line is is the sun is not always available. The moon is not always available. So that it could have either set or it could be behind a cloud mm-hmm. or it could be behind a, a very cloudy sky. Mm-hmm. So effectively what these guys have got is a fallback system. So they have a backup navigation system. Hmm. And it's a literally hierarchical. Hmm. The sun's at the top of it. Hmm. And then if that's not available, they go to the next best and they go to the next best and the next best. Mm-hmm. So the intensity gradient to the sky is something that you and I can see, but it's not that clear. Of course. It's, but the, where the sun is, the sky is brighter. Mm-hmm. And where the sun is mm-hmm. not, the sky is darker. Mm-hmm. And again, we can manipulate these guys because they are so tractable. They're so determined to push their ball in a straight line mm. that if you switch the intensity gradient of the sky around mm-hmm. so it goes against yes. the way the sky yes. is the prediction would be that they would t- change direction yes. by 180 degrees yes. and what do they do they s- they do exactly that so again it's extraordinary yeah, very simple experiment very simple straightforward oh. answer oh. now polarized light is a little bit more complex because you and i can't see it and mm. it's because of the way our eye is built mm. But essentially, it's light all moving in one plane. Mm -hmm. And the easiest analogy is to imagine light coming through a a fence, a grating, and only the light that is parallel to the the lines of the grating actually comes through. So you've effectively got lines that look like the lines on the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And imagine somebody swimming backstroke in Mm -hmm. an indoor swimming pool. That's how guys 
make sure they swim in a straight line is they follow the lines on the ceiling. Very good. And that's pretty Very much good. what the dung beetles do is they follow mm -hmm. the lines on the ceiling, except mm. this time it's the polarized light pattern mm. in the sky mm. that emanates, well, it, it comes from the dust in the sky, but it is centered around the sun. Mm. So as the sun hits the horizon, that... Um, um, polarized light pattern is in a north-south direction. And the beetles follow that? Well, we we know, well, they don't see, they don't follow it like they don't follow the sun. They use mm. it as a cue, mm -hmm. but at least, even though we can't see it, we as mm. biologists know that there's a north-south orientation mm. to the sky. Mm. So what we do then is we put down a big filter that is at right angles to the sky. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we, we give them a... A false cue. Yeah, an east-west orientation. Yes. And our prediction would be yes. that they'll do a right-angle yes. turn. Correct. And what they do is they go under the our sky, our fault sky, and hey, presto, they, they turn right. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I think that's incredible. I mean, given that one can hold these tiny little beetle in, beetles in your hand, one would never expect a priori that um, their receptors are so sensitive uh, to be able to detect the direction, uh, the deline delineation of polarized light. That is extraordinary. What you're saying to us is if you change the orientation of the patterns of polarized light, they too, by say 90 degrees, pi on two radians, they too will change direction. That is a remarkable connection between the dung beetle and uh, the cosmos, but not only the cosmos, but polarized light. I mean, understanding what it means, I'm absolutely uh, enthralled by your experiments because that is really exceptional. Thanks. And the best thing is they're good fun. You know, they, we, we have a, a great time doing it. And what's nice is we're able to take it further now. We're following the the track of the sensors into the eye and then from the eye into the brain yes so this tiny brain that we talked about with 350,000 euros yes. they don't have any spare computing capacity mm -hmm. so we're literally tracking down the neurons in the brain that are are sensitive to the polarized light or are sensitive to uv light or are sensitive to green light and we can literally find them Mm. and identify them and test mm. how they work. Amazing. Now, just before we have a little uh, music break, uh, Marcus, suppose there's a listener, for example, in matric, and they want to come and study, uh, you know, the marvelous mystery of the dung beetle at Witz in Johannesburg with you and under your expert guidance. What sort of subjects do they need to specialize in? What do they need to do? Because this to be, I think if I was doing my doctorate over again, I probably would certainly study under you. I find it absolutely a remarkable connection between the cosmos and uh, these little guys. What does a student actually need to specialize in? Um... Biology would be useful, but to be honest, and it's my subject, um, I think biology is a subject that you can pick up fairly easily if you, if you have the passion for it. Mm -hmm. Bottom line, to be absolutely boring, you've got to have the maths and the English. And it, and it's, the maths is one of my weak points um, as a scientist. I and I, and I still regret it at, mm -hmm. you know, the, the age of 55, mm -hmm. but my maths is, mm -hmm. is, so work on the maths. Mm -hmm. I hate to say that. So a good maths background, yes. Yeah. Um, 
English because you have to communicate.、Um, so, and then obviously the sciences would be useful: biology, physics, chem. Yes. And imagination and excitement. That's the thing that、yeah. you need. Passion, exactly. As we've often said, as I've often said, Marcus, passion is never taught; it is caught. <laughs> so you're listening to Professor David Block, Studio Number Zero Eight Six One Triple Five One Eight Nine, to reach us on WeChat、uh, at Cliff Central. We have an interesting question before our music break. And that is the following, and、uh, our distinguished guest in the studio today is Professor Marcus Byrne from the University of the Witwatersrand,、uh, and he is an absolute world-renowned expert in、uh, the world of entomology, in the world of beetles, in the world of insects, in the world of dung beetles. In fact, I'm sure most of our listeners. Have heard of Ted, the incredible Ted.、Uh, if you do not know TED, just Google it and see that some of the most distinguished、uh, subjects have been addressed、uh, on the、um, TED by or in TED talks. And、uh, Professor Marcus Byrne delivered a TED talk in 2012, which I simply love and adore, entitled. The dance of the dung beetle,、uh, Duncan. Doesn't that excite you? The absolute,、uh, the the dance, the actual dance of the dung beetle. I think that is extraordinary, and certainly to appear on the world stage of TED is absolutely、uh, remarkable. Our question,、uh, one of the questions, the questions are flowing in. The next question is. Uh, Professor Byrne, how is global warming hindering the navigation of the dung beetles?、Um, great question, and I'm obviously as a, a speaker, I'm going to hive off at an angle on that, but I'll, I'll answer it first. Short, the short answer is we don't know yet, but it's almost bound to because as rainfall patterns shift and temperature shifts, it will affect the insects. I see, and, and dung beetles are. Strictly driven by rainfall, and in fact, when you were talking about them appearing in June, they won't appear in June here、mm. because it doesn't rain.、Mm. They're they're literally coming、mm. on stage now, and they'll be、mm. with us through to March, April,、mm-hmm. and then as the rain goes away, then they will go away.、Mm-hmm. But I think what's just as important, and it fits in with our discussion, is that the other thing that's affecting them is light pollution.、Hmm. So as the world becomes brighter and brighter, and we are Profligate with light, you know,、mm-hmm. we we, we waste、mm-hmm. it. Absolutely, it's get, we are, get, are going to now embark on some research with dung beetles because again we know the animal so well. We know it, what it needs in terms of light cues to orientate,、mm-hmm. and we think that、uh, the light pollution might also affect the way they navigate. So, in other words, given the fact that very few people today actually might see the Milky Way. As I perhaps am privileged to do at some of the world's observatories, great observatories in the middle of the Atacama Desert and elsewhere, what you are saying is that if light pollution becomes a serious problem,、uh, the beetles will certainly their navigation patterns could be severely affected. Am I understanding you correctly? Absolutely right. And so that's what we're now embarking on now is to see what the effect of light pollution is on their、mm. navigational behaviour.、Mm. 
And then another question yet again, but we've answered this one. Does the dung beetle only feast on dung? And Professor Marcus has clearly told us that uh, that's just one of the elements in which they actually feast. But uh, we are just going to take a two-minute break, uh, again playing some of my favorite music by Antonio Vivaldi and the Four Seasons, The Beetle and the Four Seasons. You're back with Professor David Block interviewing Professor Marcus Byrne, a world-renowned expert on dung beetles and the navigation by means of the stars, amongst many other topics. Now, we have an interesting question, and that's very basic, and I'll put it in the tone in which the question was phrased, and that is... Regarding human poo So in other words not poo necessarily From an elephant um, Would it help for example If there was say human poo Somewhere uh, to get a family Of uh, dung beetles To help us clean up uh, The pooey mess uh, Being a father of twin boys I know that poo can be found Everywhere including on the walls uh, My twins uh, I specialized in using poo 
as the medium in which they decorated the glowing walls of the apartment in which, or the rooms in which we were staying while visiting friends. We found Picasso poo marks uh, spread everywhere. So if I had these dung beetles you've brought along, uh, Marcus, could they actually have assisted me in cleaning up the Pooey twin scenario. Um, in short, no. Um, dung beetles do go for human dung, and, yes. and they love it because it's very like pig dung. I see. I hate to tell you because we're omnivores. Yes. And it is extremely attractive. But the best analogy I can come up with is people often ask, can they use dung beetles in their garden to clear up the dog dung? The yes. Dog dung? Yes. And if if you go and poke around in your garden, particularly at this time of the year, under the poo, you will find beautiful little holes. It looks like someone's pushed a pencil into the soil underneath the dung, underneath mm-hmm. the dropping. And that's where a beetle has gone down and removed a, por- a portion of the dung. But unfortunately, there just aren't enough of them in an urban environment to do the job completely. I see. And the guys they're competing with are the flies. And the filth flies, um, like house flies and blow flies, are in much quicker. They lay their eggs in massive numbers mm. and they will um, utilize the dung much more rapidly than the beetles will. Mm. So I always tell people, dog poo, pick it up, stick it in a plastic bag mm. and put it in the rubbish. Mm. It really is the only way to deal with the flies. Mm. And if you were to go out and defecate in the garden thinking that you're doing the dung beetles mm-hmm. a favor, well, you and the neighbors aren't going to enjoy it the next time you have a bride because <laughs> you'll have flies for Africa. Yes. Now, I'm very interested, of course, uh, we know that uh, all our listeners might spend uh, a lot of their time, as we discussed in the previous broadcast, uh, you know, choosing, you know, selecting a mate for life or for a period of time. Now, we've been concentrating on dung beetles and the way they navigate by means of the sun, the stars, light intensities, and polarized light. But, of course, I'm sure that dung beetles also feel the need to have a mate. Uh, Is there any specific way that you have discovered, Marcus, in which they actually select their mates? We are talking about mating and the world of dung beetles. Over to you, Marcus. And of course, thanks, David, it revolves around dung because, again, <laughs> it's their mission in life. So not only do they use it as a vehicle for their genes, as I said, they lay an egg in it, and then the egg hatches into a larva, the larva feeds on the dung and then develops into a, a new beetle. The adult beetle also feeds on the dung, so it's its food source. And it also uses it as a nuptial gift. So it uses it as a, a present for their girlfriend. Hmm. So instead of a box of chocolates or hmm. a bunch of roses, How extraordinary. a little ball of poo is constructed. Hmm. Again, it depends on the species. Hmm. And the one particular species I like, the male makes a very shallow tunnel, so about two or three centimeters below the ground. Hmm. Buries a, not a big ball, as his little gift to his girlfriend and then he comes to the top of the hole and he releases a pheromone so a pheromone is like a hormone except it leaves the body so hormones are chemical messengers that stay in the body and pheromones are chemical messages that leave the body and this message is how about a good time Mm. here i am Mm. box Mm. of chocolates Mm. come and hey baby Mm. come and have a good time Mm. 
And so the female picks up the scent mm. if she's um, ready to mate, and mm. she flies in and copulates with him, and then she goes down to the end of the tunnel mm. and eats the box of chocolates. Mm. But um, as a father of daughters, I always tell the girls that they must check out the chocolates before they make any commitments because believe it or not, some of the dung beetles cheat and the male makes a little tunnel, releases his pheromone, but he doesn't put a ball at the bottom of it, mm. which I find astonishing mm. and particularly as a man that mm. you think... Hmm. Men can be bad, but even dung beetles can be bad. So there's the tunnel, but there's no gift. No gift at the bottom of it. And she gets duped into giving herself to this guy, and, and there's no reward. Hmm. That is absolutely extraordinary. Listeners, uh, imagine the following scenario. You are uh, going on a date, and you're wanting to present your beloved uh, with some precious gift. As Marcus has said, some of us might go and choose roses or proteas or boxes of chocolates or maybe a box of mangoes or whatever uh, attracts uh, the mate. Uh, perhaps some uh, fragonard from Paris. Uh, but what we are suggesting, we know Sia here is looking for a mate, is that uh, Sia needs to collect poo. Uh, Sia then has to roll the poo up into a ball. Sia then has to present this ball, first of all, tunnel uh, in his garden, take his beloved to the tunnel and tell his beloved, Oh, my beloved, I behold, I have something exceedingly special to show you today. Behold, I have the most awesome gift to give thee. And at the end of the tunnel will be this poo, which uh, Sia has rolled up into a spherical ball. But I find it remarkable, uh, Marcus, seriously speaking, that these little insects not not only navigate by means of the stars, but, I mean, can attract mates in rather sophisticated ways. Yes, their currency is poo, but uh, I find it phenomenal how sophisticated they really are. Mm. They are, you're right, they're incredible organisms. And this is why it's worth us studying them, because it appears trivial and it's entertaining and it's lovely to discover things about nature. But the bottom line is that these little guys are doing very sophisticated things on minimal mm. brain power. Mm. And we can learn from them and we will build robots yes. that do exactly yes. this. The world of robotics. Yep. You've been listening to Professor Marcus Byrne, uh, who has his honours degree, BSc Honours, London, uh, his doctorate from the University of the Witwatersrand, world-renowned expert and a TED speaker on um, entomology. He teaches zoology, but he's an expert, a world-renowned expert on the world of dung beetles and navigation by means of the stars. This is Professor David Block signing off to the sound, the background movements of Antonio Vivaldi. Until next week, I bid you goodbye.